Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on inside, settle in, and find something warm to drink. The days have been hot, and most of the evenings, but we've had a few that remind us that cold is coming. As you likely know, I've been working through last year's Goodreads list of readers' choice for best horror. I think I had skipped over remarking on Jeremy Bates' Suicide Forest. It's a story set in the Aoki-Gahara forest in Japan, which is one of the world's suicide hotspots. I found it fairly quick and enjoyable read, but there is only so much you can do with a story set in a spooky forest. So there was large tracts of the story that felt like the novelization of the Blair Witch Project. Jeremy's book is the first in his World's Scariest Places series, the second being in Paris's famous catacombs. That reminds me of a write-up I had read in the Urban Exploration Ezine Infiltration. It's an interesting read, and I've linked it in the show notes. As someone who is interested in urban exploration, I'll kick in a bit of disclaimer since we're on the topic of catacombs. Use the buddy system and be smart. The Odessa catacombs outside of Kiev claimed at least one person who got lost in them about ten years ago, and Urbex folks haven't forgot that one. Just remember, all the scary movies that have those famous last lines like, We don't really need a map, do we? Back onto the fiction that you came here for. Our first will be a brief story about horror's favorite setting, the haunted house. Megan Fairbrace is a speculative fiction writer and an all-around horror enthusiast living in Kent, England. In between writing stories about haunted houses and boogeymen, Megan is an English student studying for her B.A. And now, Megan Fairbraces. They always do. It could be pouring with rain, but that won't stop you. You'll drive along with the radio turned up just loud enough so you won't be able to hear the drum of rain against the roof of your car. The temperature might start to inch towards single digits, but... You'll just turn up the collar of your coat and crank up the heater to stave away the coldness from your lungs. Or maybe the weather will be nice. The middle of summer, perhaps. Maybe you'll drive with the windows down instead with the sun beating down on your face. Your throat will tighten and beads of sweat will start to bubble on your forehead, but of course, you won't be able to tell if that's from the heat or from the ache of anticipation. Either way, the half-empty bottle of cheap cola that's been rolling around in your car for days will start to look pretty good. You'll have wanted to visit this place for some time, won't you? Maybe you'll hear about it from some guy in a lonely corner of some bar, from on one of those websites listing abandoned buildings for would-be adventurers, or maybe you'll recall this place from the hushed voices of town horror stories. But either way, it won't matter. None of it matters, really. Whatever the day, the time, the weather, the reason, you'll still find yourself on that 40-mile stretch of road, and that's what will be important. 
At some point during that drive on that lonely road to nowhere, your mind will probably start to wander, and you'll find yourself drawn back to that same tired question. Are you really going to do this? Are you really going to go through with this? You'll have thought you committed to your decision when you left, but you'll start to doubt yourself. Play over every tired possibility. Masochist. The next exit will come up fast, and all the while your hand will hover over the indicator. Your curiosity will get the better of you, though. You just can't help yourself. The exit will pass, and you'll stay on the road. You can't stay away. Soon enough, the time will come, and you'll pull up outside and take the key out of the ignition. You might need a minute to gather your thoughts, or perhaps you'll be so pumped with adrenaline anticipation you'll burst out of the car the minute you cut the engine. The house will look different from the way you'd imagined it, or from the other decrepit, boarded-up shacks that you might have had the courage to explore before. This house will be immaculate, pristine. No wooden planks nailed to the windows, no broken glass. And if it wasn't for the overgrown mess in the garden, you'd never fancy it as abandoned. You'll probably need a moment to catch your breath. Even the most notorious of vacant buildings aren't vacant for long. Vandals, doped-up squatters, and wide-eyed adventurers all make themselves at home at some point, so the bricks should be blackened with graffiti and the porch should be littered with shattered glass and discarded cider bottles. This will be your last chance to turn back. No one will blame you if you do. The thistles will catch against your clothes as you navigate your way to the front path, as if to try and hold you back, to stop you. You'll no doubt ignore the symbolism, and your hand, clammy with nerves, will grip the handle to the front door. The point of no return. You will pull. The door will open. Things will seem normal at first. You'll gingerly tread across the hall and further into the downstairs rooms. You'll forget your earlier hesitation and marvel at the furniture and the carvings, forgotten in time, preserved only by a thick layer of dust. Maybe you'll take pictures. Maybe you'll jot down notes inspired by your new surroundings for that novel you'll never get right. It could be the middle of the day, or maybe the sun will have already gone down, but either way, the thick, dark shutters will stream only dregs of sunlight through the windows, and you'll no doubt find it increasingly difficult to see. The last remaining light will cast contorted shadows across the room that seem to shiver and pulsate in time with your own racing heartbeat. You'll start to tread more delicately, daring yourself to move further into the house, promising yourself frantically that this will all be worth it. You'll want to rush, want to finish what you came here to do, but the light from your torch, if you are smart enough to bring one, will start to flicker as the batteries suddenly begin to strain for the last drop of power. The shadows will melt into the darkness, and your arms will fly out in front of you, groping for the exit. The front door will be locked, of course. You'll start to panic, start to retrace your steps, search for another way out, but there's only one way out of this house. There always has been. You'll bang on the heavy oak door, but all that will achieve are bloodied knuckles, and the sound of your pounding will be broken only by the sound of your soul-wrenching screams of terror. The darkness will be unbearable now, and every intake of breath, it will bleed deeper and deeper into you, consuming you. The terror will suffocate you by this point, and you won't know for sure that what you're seeing is real are merely the remnants of your own fractured sanity. Your hands will fly to your face, fingernails sharp, as if to try and claw the very images out of your eyes. Soon the metallic tang of blood will mix with your own tears and burn your eyes. No amount of blood or tears will ever blur what you'll see. You'll pull frantically at the door handle one last time, but it won't open. It never does. Eventually someone will find you. They'll see your car parked outside and abandoned, and on a hunch, they'll tread carefully through the garden of weeds at the front of the house. The door will open without a problem. You'll try to tell your story, but they'll mistake your babble of terror for insanity, and your story will be tainted with doubt. They'll never believe what you saw. 
They'll say you've lost your mind, and you'll spend the rest of your days sucking down pills from paper cups. You'll be a local legend. Children will tell stories about you around soft campfires and chant your name in darkened rooms for cheap thrills. Just another small-town nutcase. But someone will believe you. Someone somewhere will hear your story and see the glimmer of truth. They'll do some research of their own and come across hushed accounts on internet forums or yellowed newspapers from defunct prints. Or maybe they'll hear about this place from that same guy in the lonely corner of that same bar, from the same website listing abandoned buildings for would-be adventurers. Or maybe they'll recall this place from the hushed tones of their own town horror stories. Either way, it won't matter. More will come. I know they will. They always do. You did, after all. And I'll still be here. I'm getting so tired. But I'll still be here. I'm always here. I'm always here. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. That was Megan Fairbrace's They Always Do, as read by John Grills. The term Jack of All Trades doesn't really apply to John, mostly because he refers to himself as a seven, maybe eight of clubs at best. On top of narrating, John has five novels of his own, including his Crazy Town mystery series, and has three more novels in the works. Husband, father, technical writer, Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor, and podcaster of his own, Jiu-Jitsu After Dark, weekly podcast. One of these days, Johns even thinks he could move up and be a solid nine of diamonds. Thank you, John. Our second story for the evening comes from Leon Chan. L. Chan lives in Singapore with his wife and a retired police canine dog. He's a fan of gothic fiction, weird tales, cyberpunk, and space opera. His favorite authors are Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, Terry Pratchett, and Neil Gaiman. Cursed with an overactive imagination, he spent most of his life telling and retelling stories in his head until he simply had to start letting them out in writing. He can be found lurking on Facebook. Link will be in the show notes. And now, Leon Chan's 
cracks. This is a warning. My best friend tried to warn me. I didn't listen. Now, all that's left of me is a shell, a broken man. I'm sorry that there's so much of it to tell. I couldn't risk leaving anything out. All I need is for one of you to understand, and I've done my job. Owen was my pal. Maybe the best one if I had to rank them. One of the good guys. He didn't have many friends. We met in high school, drawn together by a mutual love in turn-based strategy games. Master of Orion, heroes of might and magic. Owen was an absolute beast at those games. He had a queer talent for memorizing patterns, statistics, and maps. He'd devour games like a man possessed, teasing out the exploits and secrets while the rest of us were still getting our asses handed to us by the AI. Even five years out of college, Owen remained thin as a rake, his eyes looking perpetually surprised through thick spectacles. Life happened to the rest of our little circle of friends. We went corporate, chased the dream, ran the rat race. We never kept in touch like we should have, other than meeting up every few months for a meal. I gathered that he worked at a bank somewhere, cruising along and meeting his targets without excelling. The last time I saw Owen was a little over four months ago. He had arranged to meet me at one of our favorite bars in a quiet part of town. At least, it used to be, until jobs and the pressure of grown-up life just expanded and expanded, filling up my life like so much bubble wrap. I got to the bar first, or so I thought. I searched the crowd fruitlessly until my eyes focused on a lone figure in a scruffy coat sitting at the bar. I had to swallow a gasp as the man turned around. I hadn't seen Owen in a better part of a year, but he looked like he'd aged a dozen. He was thin before, but he was nothing more than skin and bones. His cheeks were sunken in, unshaven, with a wispy beard framing his mouth. He smelled of sweat and grime and worse. One thing hadn't changed. His eyes still blazed with a fierce intelligence. He gestured at the seat next to him. When he spoke, the words came out in a rush. He'd found something, he said. He'd found a warning scribbled in an old map he'd seen in a library. It pointed to a street somewhere in the city that he hadn't been able to find on modern maps or Google Maps. He'd hunted the street down, he said, and found a back alley, a nameless lane between two buildings that shouldn't have been there. Intrigued, he'd gone back and found another two maps in the library with other warnings in different handwriting from the first. The maps were published years apart, yet seemed to be warning readers away from the similar nameless streets. Owen grew more animated as he spoke, gesturing wildly, a small crust of white spittle forming at the corner of his mouth. He'd found more of the lanes the maps warned about, cracks between buildings that shouldn't have been there, hidden alleyways. I saw the familiar glint of obsession in his eyes. He'd found something special, a hidden system, and he wouldn't rest until he'd laid bare its secrets. He stopped short, his eyes widening at something through the window across the busy street. I turned around to see what had spooked him, but the throng of people at the bar and on the street blocked me. Hands shaking, he teased out a tattered map from his pocket. It was covered in his crabby writing, too small to make out by the light of the bar counter. He marked a spot and hurriedly folded the map, which quickly disappeared into his pocket. It's big, something big, something hidden. I've almost got all the places. I'm almost there. I can't move fast enough. I need something faster. So that's what he wanted, just to borrow my car for the weekend. I gave him a look that was half pity and half derision. Pity for the friend I knew, and derision for the madman twitching before me. It wasn't the first time I'd let him drive my car, much less now since we drifted apart. I had no idea what had gotten into Owen, and I wasn't even sure that I'd get it back in one piece. 
In the end, his plaintive wheedling got the better of me, and I agreed to let him have my car for the weekend. I wish to God I hadn't. I didn't hear anything from Owen on Saturday, or the day after. He didn't pick up his mobile the entire night. I had to get a cab to work on Monday morning, and planned to take my mounting frustration out on Owen after work. Friendship be damned. His antics seemed more like college hijinks than something an adult should be playing at. I checked my phone as I left my apartment. A text from Owen. Car at my place. I was wrong. Burn map. Leave nothing behind. Don't come after me. I was sufficiently unnerved by the message to leave work early. I hadn't been to Owen's apartment in years, but I still remembered the way. I saw my car parked out front, cup of coffee in the cup holder, a huge map of the city, densely annotated, unfolded in the passenger seat. I made my way up the stairs. The door to the apartment was open. Owen wasn't inside. His mother was. Her face crumpled with a grief that no parent should know. Owen's house was a wreck, his mental decline clearly reflected in his apartment. Maps, photographs, and sheets of paper covered with a mixture of scrawled handwriting covered every possible surface. Between gulping sobs, she explained how she'd just come back from the morgue to identify his body. He'd been in a pretty nasty hit-and-run accident the morning before. The cops said he must have been dragged for a distance. Facial identification was impossible. She only managed to identify him through his personal effects and a tattoo on his upper arm. Or at least, a tattoo that used to be on his upper arm. The accident had sheared a chunk of flesh right off him, and she had to identify pieces of her son's body laid out on the cold metal of a gurney. Owen's father and brother came by with the funeral director then. I excused myself, leaving the family to their grief. As his friend, I should have offered to help, but I needed to leave the house. Owen had been found on Sunday morning. I whipped out my phone to verify what I already knew. He'd texted me at 3 a.m. on Monday morning. My head was still spinning as I got into the car. The shock of Owen's sudden passing and the chill left by the text message this morning danced nauseatingly in my head. Was the fight in the bar all I had to remember him by? I unfolded the map. Owen's spidery handwriting covered almost every available space on the map. He'd been writing with a force and speed which turned his usually neat script into an illegible scrawl, so forcefully in places that the cheap ballpoint pen had punched through the paper. He'd marked out dozens of locations on the map with crude stars, accompanied by annotated times and dates. The rest of the text made no sense. There were scribbled symbols that didn't even match any language that I knew of. The snatches of English that I could decipher made no more sense than the symbols, products of Owen's obviously adult mind. They watched from the cracks, nameless streets, secret kings and queens of the city. They sing to the dead. They eat the lost. The meaningless text still sent a chill down my spine. The depths of my friend's madness shocked me. I couldn't fathom why he would ask me to destroy the map. Lost in my troubled thoughts, I started my car. A polite chime snapped me from my reverie. It came from a shiny black slab on my dashboard. A GPS unit. Not mine. Owen's. A strange thing for him to own since he didn't even have a car to start with. I looked at the tiny LED screen. It was at a location that Owen had marked out on his little GPS unit. His home? No, it was slightly off, across the street. It looked to be in the middle of a building. A shop, maybe? The streets were empty of both pedestrians as well as cars. It was a quiet street, but something felt out of place. No, the street wasn't totally empty. There was a small lane, practically just a crack between two buildings right next to my car. 
a waifishly thin teenage girl was standing there, dressed in tatty jeans and a plain threadbare T-shirt, far too thin for the icy winter weather. No shoes, either. She was wearing a look of intense focus on her face, her dark, piercing eyes staring upward towards Owen's apartment. Her face was perfectly formed, pale, but covered in streaks of dirt. Her blonde hair matted into crude dreadlocks. She seemed perfectly at ease in the cold. As though she could feel my eyes on her, her head snapped downwards and she affixed me with a mesmerizing gaze. I felt transfixed, like a butterfly pinned to a corkboard. Her bright pink tongue snaked out from between her dirty lips. The pointy tip ran across her lips in anticipation. I looked back at the GPS unit. There shouldn't have been an alley where she was standing. It should have been a continuous block of buildings. When I looked up, she was gone again. Unnerved by the nameless lane and the vanishing girl, I drove off a little faster than I should have. I must have driven at least five blocks when I heard the little chime from my dashboard again. Another star on the map. Same thing, a star where there shouldn't have been a break between buildings. I nearly slammed on the brakes in shock when I saw the girl again. There was no way she could have made the distance between my last stop and this one on foot. I racked my brains for a logical explanation as my car cruised by. A sister? Or did she have a car in a parallel street? I found her giving me that same intense look. It was the look, that hungry look. She craned her neck to follow my car as I drove by, like a snake staring a mouse down. I watched her shrinking into the rearview mirror for as long as I could. Then I floored the accelerator, trying to get as far from her as possible. Rubber squealed on the black asphalt. I'd put about seven blocks between the girl and I when the polite chime from my dashboard sounded again. Adrenaline pumped through my system. My gaze swept across the empty street. There she was again. It had to be the same girl. It had to be. She caught my gaze with her own piercing look and she smiled at me. No, it wasn't a smile. She pulled her lips up and back and bared her straight white teeth, but there was neither humor nor warmth in the expression. It put me in mind of a baboon or a wolf facing down something small and helpless, baring her fangs, I thought. She abruptly turned and scuttled down the almost hidden alley. I stopped the car. Owen had found something, and I hadn't done right by him in his last few days, but I had to know how he died. I owed him that much. I rounded the corner mere seconds after the girl. The alley was empty. Rough cement walls stretched to the sky, blocking out the tired light of the evening sun. She had vanished in the scant seconds it took me to get to the mouth of the tiny, nameless alley. My pulse quickened as I made my way down the tight corridor. My walk turned into a trot, and the trot into a sprint. By the time I had reached the end of the end of the street, my chest was heaving, constricted by bands of hot iron. My breath streamed into the cold evening air. She wasn't there. There weren't any alcoves or windows or turn-offs anywhere down the alley. I hit the end of the alley and peered down the adjacent street. No trace of the girl. No alleyway she could have turned down, no doors or windows she could have climbed through. Nothing except the empty street with a familiar car parked by the side of the road. My car. I had walked a hundred yards through a straight alley and wound up back where I started. I felt the world spin around me. I put my hands on the wall to steady myself. What had Owen found? What was he searching for before he died? How was it possible for a straight alley to start and end at the same place? Large gouts of mist shot from my mouth as my chest heaved. There was something unnatural about this place, something wrong in the air. I felt strange grooves under my hand as I pushed on the wall to straighten up. Someone, or something, had carved a series of strange symbols into the wall. Now I know where Owen had gotten those scribbled hieroglyphics from. He'd seen them, too. He must have been trying to decipher it like some code. Typical for him. 
I cast a final look straight down the strange empty alley. The girl was still nowhere to be seen. I left the strangeness of the alley behind me as I made my way back to my car. My breath misted on the cold window as I cast one final look towards that crack between the buildings, that nameless space. The nameless space with the same girl staring out at me. The temperature was close to freezing outside, but I finally realized what had unnerved me about that silent tableau. All the time, all that time I was staring at her, I hadn't seen her breath mist up on the crisp evening air. What I saw that day filled my waking moments like a creeping itch. I would find my eyes magnetically drawn to the hard plastic shell of my glove compartment on the slow commute to work. Owen's mysterious map and GPS navigator skittered around within their prison like caged rats when I took turns just a little too hard, reminding me of their presence. Owen had stumbled onto something, something strange. He'd found something, and it had consumed him. I'd gone to the funeral with the expressed intention of handing over the map and the navigator to Owen's family. The empty rows in the church showed just how far he'd taken his search. No colleagues, barely any friends, the odd family member. He'd lost his job months ago, cut off from all contact with the outside world. Owen's mom had aged a decade since I saw her last. The raw shock of hearing about her son's death replaced with a bone-deep sorrow, painfully obvious in the crinkles in the corner of her eyes, in her sunken cheeks, in her haunted, leaking eyes. I'd whispered my commiserations, saying how sorry I was, all the while the truth of the map and Owen's last warning poised in the back of my throat like a wave of bile. I choked the secrets back, where they sat in my gut, swollen and sour. I had to find out more. I spent hours trying to decipher Owen's writing, looking for a pattern in the crazed scribblings. I lacked Owen's skill with codes and systems. There was no pattern that I could discern from the constellation of marked locations. No hidden messages leapt from his ravings. There was only one other thing to try. The day was cold, I remember, even for midwinter. Not a skin cold. The cold that cut through your clothes seeped in with every breath into your lungs. A deep, bone cold. I returned to the first three alleys where I'd seen the girl. I found nothing. The alleys were totally empty, in stark contrast to the busy streets just a few yards away. The fourth one was empty, too. It was getting dark by the time I got to the fifth point marked on the map. The crowd on the sidewalks had thinned out as the chill got deeper. Owen's handwriting was impossible to read in the weakened light. I rounded the corner and saw another one. He could have been a brother or a twin for the girl I'd seen. Same blonde hair, a simple fitted t-shirt, jeans, barefoot on the biting cold concrete. He gave me a sardonic stare. He looked to be gnawing at something, a chicken wing or something similar, with great gusto. I saw as he stretched his mouth open to suck out the last ounce of flavor off the little morsel before drawing out the bleached bone from his mouth and flinging it into the distance. He made a little mew, as though he'd bitten into something sour. His eyes still locked with mine, he opened his mouth and rooted around with a questing finger. Finding what he'd been looking for, he hooked out a huge-looking grayish chunk out of his mouth and delicately set it on the floor. Abruptly, he turned, took three deliberate steps to his right, and vanished around a turn. I rushed forward to see what he had out on the floor. I wish I hadn't. It was a ring, class of 06, still slicked wet with saliva on the outside, but sticky red with blood and shreds of tissue on the inside. I instinctively clutched at the identical ring I wore on my index finger. The boy hadn't been chewing on any buffalo wing. He'd been chewing on Owen's finger. The smell of blood hit my nose, sharp and rich through the evening chill. My last meal rushed out of me in a flood and sat hot and steaming on the cold floor. I turned to face the small nook the boy had walked into. Nothing. 
like the girl, he'd vanished. All that lay before me was a featureless dead end. Not featureless, something that nobody else could have seen, nobody but Owen and me. There, in the delicate spiderweb of cracks on the concrete, drawn out in thin black filigree on the wall, was another of the symbols from Owen's map. When does a search become obsession? And when does obsession burst into mania? Owen's degeneration was as clear as day to me, but my own descent was far more subtle. The terrible damage of the accident had visited one final indignity on Owen and his kin. They had to say goodbye to the polished wood veneer of a closed coffin. Had it really been my dear friend in that box? There must have been a few hundred of those rings pressed out. It could have belonged to anyone in my graduating year, yet I knew deep inside of me that it had to be Owen's ring that I had picked up off the cold cement wet with spit and blood. My search began in earnest then, to seek out what he had found, hoping beyond reason that I would find my old friend somewhere along the path. It started innocently enough. I'd spend a free evening after work wandering the streets, following Owen's map, each location like another morsel on a trail of breadcrumbs. Again, I got the sense of a deeper pattern behind the randomness and cursed myself for being unable to see it. Each site I visited seemed to hold a piece of the puzzle. I grew adept at finding the hidden symbols that Owen had found in the cracks of the city. I'd already found the first symbols scrawled into the wall in chalk when I'd seen the girl. Another hidden in a network of cracks in a wall, after I found Owen's ring on the floor. Those weren't the last. I found another set of three symbols, hidden within spray-painted tags on a wall. One more in the carefully arranged guts of a dead rat, its bowels burst and scattered over the floor. Another, woven into the silken threads of a spiderweb, stretched between gray concrete and a rusty dumpster. Those hidden lanes and alleys were always deserted. It could be lunch hour or rush hour, with the streets thronging with people and they would still be empty. I'd walk down those plain blank concrete canyons for hour after hour, always feeling watched, never alone. I never saw another living soul in those lanes and alleys during my search, but the hairs on the back of my neck would rise once I stepped into one. There was a sense of something deeply wrong, wholly unnatural about those empty spaces. The sudden silence would envelop me like a cocoon, the rush of voices and vehicles coming from a world away, faint like the tinny broadcast of a distant radio station. The isolation was palatable. With the insulation came a crawling fear, a watery feeling in my guts and my legs that something or somebody was observing me, leading me in my search. I never saw another living soul in those lonesome places, until I started seeing them again. The glances were always fleeting, titillating, a glimpse of a person turning into one of the cracks into the city seconds before I rounded the corner, only to find myself alone in an empty alley, or a set of footprints leading from a puddle, imprints of bare feet like those of the boy and the girl vanishing into the distance as the cold, dry air drank the moisture off the trail. A recently toppled trash can still rolling on the floor without any breeze to push it. I'm sure I saw the girl again once, the blonde one, another girl with her dirty brown hair cut short. The boy I saw several times, always in the distance, always fleeing from me. I'm sure there were more. My search intensified. I took time off from work to visit the cracks repeatedly. The symbols practically leapt out at me from the walls and the floors, screaming to be read, deciphered. My experience with the first crack never repeated itself, but it was hardly the last oddity I experienced in the cracks. Once, near midnight, I found a crack that stretched for a full city block on the map, yet I could only count seventy-six paces from entrance to exit. Against all rationality, it measured seventy-six yards within the crack, but a hundred yards on all parallel routes. On yet another day, I went into one of the cracks, scanning the walls for more of the symbols when I emerged, blinking at the sudden brightness three blocks down from where I'd entered. 
How could a straight path have deposited me anywhere but directly opposite where I'd gone in? By this point, my search was starting to take its toll. I'd gone beyond the point of worrying my friends. My phone, once a source of tweets, Facebook updates, and text messages, slowly went silent. My boss had called me in and told me that he was letting me go. My job would still be waiting for me if I applied again. He put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eye. I like you, he said. You've been a great worker, smart and fast. I don't know what kind of shit you've been going through for the past couple of weeks, but you're not contributing anymore, and I can't afford to keep you on at the state you're in now. I mumbled something vague about things being bad at home. I was too wrapped up in my obsession to care by that point. I'd gone beyond visiting and revisiting the same sites marked on Owen's map. The week before, I'd found a crack that wasn't on the map, something new. Owen hadn't found them all. I could almost sense the shape of things, some pattern in the layout of the cracks, some waiting breakthrough in the symbols. That's when I found him. I had a lot more time without my job. My search expanded. I found two more cracks, greedily documenting their locations and taking pictures of all the symbols I could find. And then I found my fourth one. The sun was high overhead but the light provided no warmth. Like a morgue, I remember thinking, all bright and cold. I rounded a corner on a busy street downtown. My breath caught in my throat. I felt the familiar tingle. I'd found another one. My heart leapt. There was something else here. A few yards in, hunched over, was a man. A denizen of the streets from the look of it his tattered jacket wrapped tightly around his slight frame to keep out the biting cold. A dirty hand poked out of his jacket, holding the zipperless front together. I just saw two fingers clutching the dirty material. Some terrible damage had been wrought on his hand, a bandage, gummy with dried blood and pus covered the rest of it. I rushed forward to speak to him, the first other real person I'd seen in my search. He perked up at the sound of my footsteps. His roomy eyes widened as he saw me. The man raised a sheet of cardboard, crudely torn from some carton or box. I'd expected to see something routine, a plea for spare change, something about being willing to work, maybe even something witty. Instead, scrawled in large blocky letters, four words, Run, they hunt you. The rough strokes of the letters were too broad to have come from a sharpie or a marker pen. The ink was a rusty smear of brown, too spread out to have come from a normal writing instrument. Blood. The man had written the warning in blood. Who? I formed the question with my lips, even as the answer rang in my mind, clear as a bell. Owen's voice. The king and queens of the city. In that moment, my eyes locked with the clear blue eyes of the wreck of a man in front of me, and the dawning realization hit me like a freight train. Owen, sweet God in heaven, I was looking at Owen. He'd known it was me all along, of course, but he hadn't expected the look of recognition on my face. He opened his mouth and moaned, a wordless sound of pure anguish, his mouth wide enough for me to see the black stump flapping around inside like a dying fish. The shock of recognition was too much for me. My knees buckled as I backpedaled away from the ruinous vision in front of me. I went over backwards. The impact drove the air from my lungs. The world flashed white as my head met the floor with a crack. I got to my knees, wincing in pain. Owen wasn't there in front of me. I raised my head. The pain felt like tent spikes between my ears. Owen was standing a few feet from me, but he wasn't alone. The blonde girl was standing next to him dwarfed by Owen's gangly frame. She held his hand delicately, like a nurse leading someone old and infirm. Owen's entire demeanor had changed. Moments before, he had worn an expression of shock and anguish. All that had melted away, and there was nothing but naked fear in his eyes. He shook gently as the girl raised his ruined hand to her lips, 
planting a kiss on the rotten bandages over his missing fingers. Not a kiss. I saw her lips work up and down as she sucked hungrily. When she looked up, there was a smear of brown over the perfect pink bow of her lips. We're coming for you next. There is so very little of this one left, and there are so many of us. Her voice was clear and sharp, with just a trace of girlishness. She reached up and stroked Owen's cheek softly, smiling at me. Owen shuddered. The crotch in his jean darkened as he lost control of his bladder. I tried to get to my feet, but the pain was blinding. The rush of blood to my head whited out my vision again. I blinked furiously, trying to clear my sight. When the world swam back into focus, Owen and the girl were gone. I rushed forward to the spot where I'd seen him last. Nothing lingered but the faint smell of piss and fear. Like the first time I'd stepped into these cracks, a long, straight, concrete corridor stretched before me. No traces of Owen or the girl. Then the screaming started. The same sound that Owen had made earlier, a sound of pure pain and anguish torn straight from his soul. It seemed like it was coming from everywhere and nowhere. I spun like a madman, hoping to catch at least one glimpse of my friend. He wasn't there. I put my hand against the wall to steady myself. I snapped my hand back. The wall was vibrating, humming. The screams were coming from the wall. I ran. The streets had emptied for the evening. I'd lost track of where I was, how far I'd run. I felt like a man coming up for air, surfacing from the depths of a waking dream. A stranger looked back at me from the glass facades of the shops I walked past. An eternity ago, I was young, full of life and successful. Owen was the vagabond, the kook, the madman. Now we were the same, he and I, disheveled, unshaven, with one difference. I was afraid now, afraid of what I'd become, of how far I'd fallen, afraid of what I'd been chasing, not knowing that I was being hunted with a greater hunger than I was capable of imagining. I swallowed a little scream as I saw a pale face watching me in the reflection. I peeked over my shoulder. A young man stared out at me from an alley. One of them. The alley was dark. The scant streetlights made it seem like he was floating in the shadow. He beamed widely at me, his teeth white and perfect, and stepped backwards. The darkness swallowed him. My pace quickened. Another alley. Another crack. Two of them this time, staring out from across the street, their eyes bright with mirth and longing. Is this what Owen saw that night at the bar? Was he being hunted too? I broke into a slow jog, and then into a flat-out sprint as the fear took root and grew. Owen was dead now. I was sure of it. I had squandered his first warning, and I feared that second warning had come too late. I had to get home. Destroy the maps, like Owen said. Stay away from the cracks. Maybe leave town. There was nothing left for me here anyway. Only one more thing to do, and I've just done it. Like the map Owen found, or the last text he sent me, or his last message written to me in his own blood. I've burnt the map, deleted all my photos, thrown out the GPS unit, anything that had hints at where the cracks are. All that I need to do is leave my story, my warning, and my hope that nobody else follows me or sees what I've seen. I am done. There are cracks in our cities. There are dark things that live in the cracks, hidden things lurking in the web of cracks like spiders, waiting for the unwitty, the unprepared, and the lost. And they are hungry. That was Leon Chan's Cracks, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology to that he can communicate in this limited fashion. He is a frequent narrator for two podcasts, Far-Fetched Fables, and right here, of course, on... Tales to Terrify, both part of the District of Wonders network. His first audiobook was released on audible.com last month. Thank you, Seth. 
That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. like to look five years younger. In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.